Chapter 7 How to Begin Walking by Faith Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18 I used to read this verse and think, how in the world is that possible? It seemed so far from reality that I could hardly even imagine it. Now I know why. It is because I was so frequently walking by sight, a slave to my feelings and circumstances. How could I genuinely rejoice when I was feeling everything but joy? I was unaware of the permanent, unseen reality in which to anchor my soul, let alone how to live there all the time. But the moment that I began striving to believe in the unseen life which Christ had bought for me, I began to see the practicality of these verses. I found myself naturally rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks more than ever. Whereas it used to seem like an impossibly burdensome commandment, there is now hardly a moment that goes by when I feel it a burden to do these things. Rather, it is my very lifeline for living and walking in the Spirit. It is the most practical way of thinking that builds my faith, tethers me to the truth, and helps me live free and victorious. Some will be inclined to call this kind of thinking denial, and in a way, it is. I take it as a compliment. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Matthew 16, 24. When the truth cannot readily be seen or felt, then we must deny that what we see and feel is true. I encourage you to read that sentence one more time. Let us make no mistake about it. If you are in the mind of Christ, you are out of your mind, and there is no better way to live. It is time to start believing in God for what He says. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Applying in Prayer Since we have spent a lot of time discussing our very real death to sin, let us talk about how we might use prayer to grow in that particular belief and bear the fruit of righteousness. I'm going to assume that you know the importance of acknowledging your sin before God. See Psalm 32 or 1 John 1, 5-10. If you have made it this far in the book, then you must care about this. You are under no illusion about your need for His grace. But when you come to God for this purpose, you have essentially two options. One will leave you perpetually waiting on His grace, the other powerfully walking in it. The first way of prayer is to ask God for that which we think we do not yet have. Ask Him for forgiveness, hoping to persuade Him. Ask Him for freedom, wondering when He will provide it. Present yourself to Him broken and lacking, insisting that He must still do something more to deliver you from your unholy desires and bondage to sin. There is something about this kind of prayer that intuitively may feel more humble and righteous, but it is not grounded in His grace and His promises. When we pray this way, as if we have not fully died to sin, we inevitably either justify our going on in sin or condemn ourselves for still being enslaved to it. This is the antithesis of freedom and victory, stripping faith of all its immediate practical value and turning it into nothing more than hope for the future. But hope is for the future. Faith is for now. The second and far better way to pray, I believe, is to praise God and thank Him for what He has already given us. We confess our sins, yes, 
but then we thank him that we are forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness. See 1 John 1.9. Rather than begging him to help us further die to ourselves, we rejoice that we have died. Rather than asking that he make us new, we celebrate that he already has. It is not in the slightest bit offensive to God that we so boldly proclaim such things, for they are only true, and not one has been accomplished through a work of our own. Indeed, this is the radical nature of grace which God had in mind when he sent his Son to save whoever would simply believe. This kind of prayer is how we begin to walk by faith, not by sight. Not to mention, it appears that this way of thinking and praying is nothing short of a biblical command. As Paul says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, Romans 6.11, and present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, Romans 6.13. What does it say about us if we always come to God broken and empty? This is certainly not the picture of the Christian life put forth in the New Testament. Call it honest if you like, but then you must call God a liar, since according to his gospel, Jesus has made you new and full. Christians are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Ephesians 6.10 We are to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us. Hebrews 12.1 Yet many Christians have spent their whole lives coming to God as if they are still weak and broken. And every time they ask that he fix them, I imagine him looking down and saying, What more do you want me to do? It appears to them that he never answers their prayers, but in reality, they were answered at Calvary. Now please understand me. I am not saying there is never a time for a believer to be wretched and mourn and weep. James 4.9 When we have veered off course, then godly grief is completely appropriate. See 2 Corinthians 7.10 But let us never mourn in deception, as if we have not already been given everything by God including new hearts. Let us never believe that we are humbling ourselves before God while refusing to believe His gospel and walk in His grace. To be sure, there is nothing that will keep us more honest and humble, nor that will produce more godly grief and repentance than faith in what He has done for us and who we are in Him. On the same note, when we feel troubled, confused, weak, or lost, we should cry out to God for help. We do not need to conceal these things from God under a pretense of faith. Faith and honesty are never opposed to one another. In fact, I would argue that being nakedly honest before the Lord is actually a demonstration of our trust in Him. That being said, let us make sure that our honesty does not actually mean denial of God's Word. For instance, you may confide in God that you are feeling wildly anxious and that it is quite a struggle to overcome. It is a fact that you feel this way, and you need not hide it from Him, nor can you hide it from Him. But then you must not stop there, for then you would only be walking by sight, which never produces strength and leaves you enslaved. There is a greater reality which He has given you, a spirit He has put inside of you, a life which is hidden in heaven, in which there is no such thing as anxiety. While it is a fact that your flesh is feeling anxious, the truth is that your spirit is at peace in Jesus. Upon which will you set your mind? Facts 
or truth? According to which will you live, the flesh or the spirit? I am also not diminishing the importance of recognizing one's depravity, brokenness, and need for God. To be sure, this is the only kind of soil that is receptive to the seed of the gospel. But once the gospel seed has been effectively planted, depravity and brokenness are no longer accurate descriptions of the believer. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. 1 Peter 1, 23-25 The kind of prayer where we present ourselves to God as broken sinners is only appropriate until the point that one is delivered from such a state, which is at the moment of belief in Jesus Christ. While we must still acknowledge our sin, we know that it is no longer due to brokenness, but deception. Hence the need to start believing in the truth. Once we were broken, but now we are a new creation. Do we think that somehow our newness is still broken? Or do we believe that God has fixed the problem? God removed our old hearts and gave us a new one. See Ezekiel 36, 26. Was this heart surgery a hack job? Is there something he missed? Or is the heart that he gave us as pure and wonderful as he would want it to be? You might also think of it this way. We used to be in desperate need of God, in the sense that we did not have him. And while we will always continue to need him, we do not need him in the same sense, for now we have him. A believer's desperate plea for God's presence in their life is a clear sign that they are living out of their feelings, not the gospel truth. For Jesus promised, I am with you always to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. It is now only appropriate to say, Lord, I need you, in the context of knowing, Lord, I have you. It is only appropriate to say, Lord, do it, in the context of knowing that the Lord has done it. And oh, what joy this brings. Try it now. Let us never again think that we need to wait on His grace for freedom and sanctification. His word says that His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 2 Peter 1.3 We have all that we need for life and godliness. So if we lack anything at all in this regard, let us first assume that we lack faith, not grace. If we are to ask God for help, let us ask Him for help to believe in the good news. If we are to strive for anything, let us strive to believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ. There is no shame at all in saying, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. See Mark 9.24. It may even be that for the first time in a while, we will actually be praying a prayer that He can answer. My Besetting Sin For a long time in my life, on and off for 15 years, I wrestled with a pornography addiction. Addiction may be too strong of a word, depending on how exactly one thinks of it, but it is appropriate here in the sense that it describes how I could not always control myself. It was what I would call my besetting sin. It felt like I had tried nearly everything to be free of it. Prayer, confession, repentance, accountability partners, accountability software, etc. I truly wanted to be free. I despised this sin. Remember Romans 7? But it seemed like no matter how hard I tried, even if I was able to keep it at bay for weeks or months at a time, 
I always fell back into it. And even when I was temporarily clean, there was still a constant battle with lust going on in my mind. The best anyone could tell me was to try harder or stop trying so hard. The former never worked, and the latter did not sit well with me. I had been desperate for a solution for years, and one day I came across a simple practice that would change me forever. It was a wonderful little trick for building faith and praying more effectively. It goes like this. When you ask the Lord for something, only say please once. Then, as you continue praying, start saying thank you. It may sound a little presumptuous or perhaps too bold, but it is grounded in an amazing biblical promise. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Luke 11.9 And whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Mark 11.24 And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John 14.14, etc. Saying thank you is a simple way of putting your faith into practice. It exposes within your own heart how much you actually believe the Lord will answer you, and thus provides a sort of benchmark to see if your faith is growing each time you pray. More importantly, it trains the mind to trust in the Lord, His word, His promises, His provision, His love, His goodness, etc., despite everything else that tells us to think otherwise. Some are opposed to this kind of prayer, but it should be quite evident that their contention is with Jesus, not me. I am simply taking God at His word. Perhaps they think it misleads people to pray for things that may not be in God's will. Yet I would propose that there are some things which we can be confident, if not entirely certain, that are always within God's will. We ought to pray for these things boldly and expectantly. One of these things is freedom from sin, which happened to be the content of my prayer anyway. When I learned this new way of praying, I immediately applied it to my addiction. One day, for probably the 10,000th time, I prayed, Lord, will you please free me from pornography forever? And then it struck me. I would never again ask God to free me from this addiction. I would only thank Him for having done it. Committed to this new prayer of faith, I said for the first time ever, thank you, trying my best to believe that my request had been fulfilled in that very moment. Moving forward, whenever I prayed about this subject, I resolved only to say thank you, giving praise to God for His perfect deliverance and my total victory, whether I entirely believed it was true or not. To my delight, it did not take long for me to actually start believing that God had set me free, the fruit of which was real freedom. Without even knowing it, I was beginning to walk in the power of the gospel and the victory which had been mine all along. I was thanking God for answering my prayer that day, and I was learning to walk in the belief that He had delivered me. But what I had yet to perceive is that my newfound freedom from pornography was not so much an answer to prayer as it was the result of my faith. Nor was it a special outpouring of grace, but rather an application of the truth which is true of every Christian the moment they are born again. Within a week or two of praying this way, I had a dream, which I think drives this point home very nicely. It was the type that is so vivid and peculiar that, upon awakening, one immediately suspects us from God. A Dream Analogy 
In my dream, I was being watched and followed by some sort of mafia. There was a bounty on my head, and everywhere I went, I saw these threatening characters standing in the distance. I was fearful, anxious, and constantly wondering when they were going to get me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Psalm 40:12. After much of this torment, there was a great turning point in the dream when I walked into their meeting house unannounced. I went straight up to the mob boss, who just happened to be sitting at a round table playing poker with his associates. I tapped him on the shoulder, and when he spun his head around, I handed him my father's credit card, which contained an endless supply of money, as much as he would ever need and more, to remove my apparent debt. I guess I had a rich father. The bounty was removed from my head, and I walked out of that house a free man. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. Colossians 2, 14-15 Already, I would say it was a pretty cool dream. But here is where it gets especially interesting. Later in the dream, as I was enjoying my new life of freedom, I heard a knock on the door. To my surprise, when I opened it, I saw me. But the person was not exactly like me. He was anxious, frightened, and wearied. He told me that he was in danger and that I was too. There were people after him, and he was convinced that I must go with him and run to stay safe. I quickly realized that he was me from before the incident. My response to him was casual and dismissive. I was not the least bit persuaded to go with him, although I did feel some pity for the poor soul, for I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was no longer I. There was no question about it, no reason to ponder. I was there when my debt was paid. He could not convince me otherwise. Get out of here, I said, as I shut the door in his face and moved on with my new life. Before the dream was over, this encounter happened a couple more times in the very same way. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Galatians 5.1 When I awoke, I knew that God was trying to tell me something very important. And in the coming months, its meaning and application became more clear and more powerful to me as He revealed through Scripture what he had done for me in Christ. Here is my basic interpretation. The crux of the dream was the incident when I paid off the mob boss with my father's credit card, which clearly symbolizes Jesus' death on the cross and payment for my sins. Therefore, the first part of the dream, prior to that event, represented my slavery to sin and the power of evil over me. This was my life before Jesus. And the freedom I experienced later in the dream seemed related to the freedom I had begun to experience regarding my addiction to pornography, and actually, freedom from sin in general. This being the case, what immediately caught my attention is the means by which I became free. It was through the payment of my debt, i.e., Jesus' death, and nothing else. It was as if the Lord was telling me 
that the freedom I had recently prayed for regarding my addiction to pornography had been accomplished long before I ever prayed for it. Not as a result of prayer, but through the finished work of Christ. I had simply not been walking in that grace until I began praying and believing that it was there. Even more fascinating to me is the part of the dream when my old self came back into the picture, convinced that I was still under oppression and needed to go with him. No matter what he said, I simply knew that it was not true. Due to the earlier cross event, I was confident in my new freedom, and I had no reason to follow him. This is powerful. In my own life up to that point, I realized that the reason I had kept falling back into the sin was not due to a lack of deliverance, but a lack of accurate belief. I was only enslaved to sin, although not really, because I believed I was. Every time the old man, the flesh, came around, say with an impure thought or a powerful feeling, trying to convince me that I was not entirely free, I simply went along with him as if it were true, trying to keep from sinning by my own strength and weighed down by the seeming inevitability of failure. Then when I failed, it reinforced the belief that I was still under the power of sin and I continued living under oppression. Sound familiar to anyone? In my mind, I thought that I needed hard evidence before I could claim total freedom. In other words, I was always looking to string together months or years of purity to prove that I had overcome this sin. But of course, this is actually the very mindset that kept me imprisoned for so long. The solution? Look only to the cross. The moment that I found confidence in my victory through the finished work of Christ, rather than anything else, is the moment that sin stopped being able to control me. In the months after this revelation, there were but a couple of final times when I fell back into that sin, or relapsed. But these instances were not like the rest for one reason. Afterward, I did not let the sin convince me that I was not yet victorious. Instead, I simply realized that I had been duped. My flesh came knocking at the door, and I momentarily believed the lie that he was still me. Once I came to my senses, all I needed to do was look back to the cross to confirm the truth, walking out of it once again a perfectly free man, giving thanks to God through Jesus Christ that I had been made new. In all honesty, this was not as easy to do as it is to retell. Believing in the face of lies takes conviction, trust, persistence, and effort. But the effort is in believing and walking in what God says is true, rather than striving to make something true, which is yet to be. The two are very different. The flesh and Satan will come on strong at times, making a superbly convincing case that we are still in sin, that we have not yet been made new. But we need only to look to the cross to see that through Jesus we have died to sin and that the voice of the flesh is no longer who we are. We may say to ourselves, if I am truly free, then why am I being bombarded with all these fleshy thoughts and feelings? We may be tempted to think that because there is an ongoing battle, there is not yet perfect freedom. But then we have misunderstood the battle. Our freedom has been won. We must now fight to believe. Our freedom is perfect. Our faith is not. We must now look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. 
Hebrews 12, 2. We might even find that in moments or even seasons of weakness, we have fallen into the trap, believed the lie, followed the flesh, and given into temptations of all sorts. Does this mean that we are still our same old selves, in the flesh and sold under sin? By no means. Does this nullify the grace and faithfulness of God, or undo the work of Christ, which is received through faith alone? Absolutely not. It means we were lied to, we were gullible, and it is time now to plant ourselves firmly in the unchanging truth of the gospel, as opposed to the always-changing state of the flesh. It is time to put off your old man, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new man, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians 4, 22-24 This is true repentance, putting off falsehood and putting on truth, believing in the unseen reality, despite what we see. A Breakthrough in Prayer One morning, as I was spending time in prayer, my wife came into the room and sat down to do the same. As I was finishing up my prayers, I felt an unusual urge to pray over her, although I did not know why. So I offered to lay my hands on her to do so, and she accepted my offer. At one point, while I was praying over her, I had a strong sense of God's presence over the both of us. It was really a wonderful feeling. I gave voice to this by saying to my wife, Wow, do you feel that? I do not believe she responded at the moment, but I did not think anything of it. Having believed that I had kicked her day off with a good, husbandly blessing— I finished my prayer, left the room, and went about my day. Little did I know, she had woken up that morning feeling unusually far from God. Inwardly, she was feeling weak and weighed down by his apparent absence. So when I reveled in his presence and asked if she could feel it too, I only made matters far worse because she did not feel a thing. Immediately, this made her wonder what was wrong with her, since she could not feel what I felt and it reaffirmed her suspicion that God was not with her. How horrible a feeling, but how wonderful an opportunity. For there is no better time to grow in one's faith than when we cannot see or feel what God's Word says is true. To my wife's credit, this is not the end of the story. At that point in our lives, we had just begun learning about how to walk in faith. And after I left the room, when she was alone with God, she had a decision to make. Was she going to allow her feelings to dictate her beliefs? Or would she fight to believe what God's word clearly says is true? Was she going to give in to this despair, wonder why God was not with her, and begrudgingly go about her day without him? Or was she going to renounce her reliance on the flesh and rejoice in the reality of his presence and fullness in her life? That day, she chose the latter of the two. She thanked God for his perfect presence for never leaving her and always being close, even though she did not feel it. She praised him for making her new and fully pleasing to him, despite her feelings of shame and unworthiness. She chose not to focus on how she felt, but instead to focus on God's word. Worth noting is that she did not have to pretend that she felt differently. She could acknowledge how she felt, while at the same time recognizing the irrelevance of her feelings and proclaiming the truth over her life. It was short and simple, but it was powerful.
Within 10 or 15 minutes, she felt as close to God as ever, and she learned firsthand the power of faith to overcome the flesh. How easily she could have succumbed to her feelings, believing the lies of the enemy who so manipulates the flesh. It is not hard to imagine how she might have reached out to her Christian friends that day, asking them to pray for her spiritual state as if there were no other recourse besides prayer and waiting. And worse, who knows how long the spiritual stupor could have continued as she waited on God to answer her prayer. Days turn into weeks, and weeks turn into months. Before long, she determines she's in a dry season. Even longer, and she's in a spiritual desert, blindly standing at the eternal wellspring of life, yet waiting for God to provide refreshment. And if ever she did start to feel better about things, she would be as much a slave to her flesh as ever before, still rising and falling with the fickleness of feelings, making Satan's job easy as he plays her like a fiddle. No doubt she would have remained in spiritual infancy, never having found her way to the pure spiritual milk by which one grows. 1 Peter 2.2 To me, this story highlights in a very simple way how one begins to walk in faith and overcome. It really is this simple. There is no promise that it will be easy. In fact, quite the opposite. But every effort we make to believe in the face of lies— will result in strength and sanctification that we could never have obtained otherwise. You might now be wondering, how often do I do this? Am I just supposed to be rejoicing and giving thanks all the time? And in response, I would lead you back to the scripture that was quoted at the beginning of the chapter. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18 I have found no better way to remain grounded in unseen truth than this. If you want to be established in the faith, then abound in thanksgiving for every promise, every gift, every truth, and every command in Scripture. See Colossians 2, 6-7